Morning, everyone. Um, so this time of the year, our town is inundated by these little lorikeets, little green lorikeets. They're honey eaters. They actually have uh, little hairs on their tongue. And they stick out their tongue into the flowers and they pull out the nectar, the honey. And they come in large groups. They'll cover a tree. They're obviously family groups. They sing and they chatter and they just sound gorgeous. And I've noticed these birds because we've got um, flowering gums across the road from our house and they've been growing in number over the last uh, little while, five or six years I would say, uh, to quite large groups. And God just spoke to me one day and he said they're happy because they're getting honey out of the flowers. They're happy. And he said, my word is like honey. Um, Psalm 119 puts it this way. How sweet are your words to my taste. He's talking about the word of God. Sweeter, sweeter than honey in my mouth. So we're going to dig into the word. We're going to continue to dig into the word. We've been uh, doing this um, a Second Corinthians series for a little while now. And uh, we're up to the point where we're getting to the end of what was called the Great Digression. So Paul has some lifestyle issues that he needs to discuss with the Corinthian church. How do you put your Christianity in practice? What are the things in your culture that are no longer appropriate? Um, but he's also having in Second uh, Corinthians to uh, address another issue where some so-called super apostles have come. They've been trying to preach a different gospel and in the same time, at the same time, um, denigrating Paul as not an authentic apostle. So uh, Paul will be getting back to that after he finishes with this great digression. But the great digression is basically Jesus, uh, Paul getting excited about Jesus. Jesus has won for us a glorious new agreement with God, a glorious new covenant. And he gets excited about that. He just leaves what his, his message is and says, because we have this in Jesus now. And so he goes on for about four chapters. We're going to get to the end of that today. Now, last week, uh, John Barrows brought chapter 5 to us where Paul explains what the ministry of reconciliation is. Because of the new agreement that we have with God, we are reconciled with God and we are given a ministry of reconciliation. And here in chapter 6, he basically is putting some practical application on it. This is what it looks like in my life and that is what it can look like in our life too. So I've forgotten my pointer. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> so we're just going to quickly go through what uh, was mentioned last, was preached on last week so that um, we refresh ourselves on this definition of the ministry of reconciliation. Since then, we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade others. So throughout scripture, the people who are on, on about God, who are serious about God, who are wholehearted in their love for God, are called those who fear the Lord. 
we get the whole thing with uh, reverence, respect, honouring God and obeying him. But why is it called the fear of the Lord? So, you know, God is the creator of everything we know. We call him the Almighty. And as the Almighty, he could choose to snuff out our life like that, deny us our next breath or next heartbeat. But he doesn't do that. He doesn't do that because his heart's desire is to know us as sons and daughters, for us to know him as heavenly father. And so we are right to be afraid of a God that can do that, but to reverence a God who chooses a different way. For Christ's love compels us. It is the love of God in Christ that enters us at the moment of salvation and it compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. Jesus died for every human being. And the moment that we believe, we actually die to ourselves, to our own way of doing things. goes on, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. A new creation. Why? Because in and of ourselves, we cannot do salvation. God does salvation in us. We receive it by faith and we're made new. And when we're made new, we are given this ministry of reconciliation. So we have discovered that we've died to self but become alive to Jesus and suddenly everything spiritual changes. God is no longer simply a faraway judge figure. He's become our heavenly father. We who were once separated from him are now together with him. We who were once his enemies are now his friends. We who were once simple human beings trying to find our own way are sons and daughters of Almighty God. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. Every single one of us has had people who have known Jesus and loved God so into our lives. God made his appeal to us through them. And now we are given that same ministry to talk about the love of God, what God has been doing in our lives so that God can make his appeal through us to others. And verse 21, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You know, once we were actually enslaved to sin, However we describe sin, we were captive to our way of doing life, our coping strategies, um, our particular human foibles, our desires that sometimes went crazy on us. But then we were freed from that because we died to ourselves, came alive to Jesus and found that we're now slaves to righteousness. Much better way to live. We become the righteousness of God. So Paul goes on 
in chapter 6 and he says this. As God's co-workers, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain for he says, in the time of my favour I heard you, in the day of salvation I helped you. I tell you, now is the time of God's favour. Now, right here, right now, is the day of salvation. So he begins as God's co-workers. So far, the people of God have been named as those who fear the Lord, those who are compelled by the love of Christ, those who have been made new creations, those who have been given the ministry of reconciliation and are called ambassadors for Christ and those who have been come the righteousness of God. In that context, God calls us co-workers. I remember when I used to read this passage and I would just sort of gloss, off of the, gloss over that co-worker bit. That was obviously talking about Paul and his preaching team, you know, Timothy and Titus and Silas and all of those that were with him. And I didn't ever apply it to me. And then one day it's like God woke me up and he said, you are my co-worker. Every Christian is my co-worker. And I said, whoa, that, that's heavy, God. What, what kind of responsibility is that, that I'm a co-worker with you? Only you can do this stuff. <laughs> and then I remembered Jesus' words. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, heavily burdened, and I will give you rest. And he goes on, take my yoke upon you. Be joined to me. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And I realise, you know, it's not me doing everything on my own. I am just a very ordinary woman. But God comes by his spirit. He takes me by the hand he speaks through me. He gives me his words in season and he never leaves me alone. We do this together and that's the truth for every believer. Together we can urge people, don't receive God's grace in vain. There is salvation for you, favour from God for you today. Last week, John Barrows told a couple of stories about the ongoing work of salvation in his life. He described the fact that he grew up in a Christian church and he believed, he always believed that God was real, that Jesus was real, that he was saviour and that he died for people's sins. What he didn't believe was that Jesus needed to be king of his life. And then one day God got him. <laughs> he got him. And John knew that he had to become a Christian, a real Christian, a true Christian. That was 30 plus years ago. But then more recently, God also got him about something. He said to him, God said to him, I have this against you. You've left your first love. Repent and do the things that you did at first. And of course, John responded to the conviction of God. He acknowledged the truth of that. And so he turned back to the things that he should have been doing and went on in his faith. You see, we are the righteousness of God 
And righteousness is being unveiled in us. It's being uncovered in us. It is growing in us as we follow God. So we're not surprised by these stories. We have these stories ourselves. So this is how Paul put it. God says, In the time of my favour I heard you, and in the day of salvation I helped you. Paul says, Now is the time of God's favour. Now is the day of salvation. So today, this day, is the day of God's favour. His favour is upon us because we are now his children, his sons and his daughters. We are special to him. And when we ask for help, he answers us. Now is the day of salvation. Every day is a day when we live in salvation and that we minister salvation. It is freely available to every person around us as God continues to make his appeal through us. So Paul goes on. We put no stumbling block in anyone's path. This is a look at what salvation looks like and the ministry of reconciliation looks like in Paul's life. We put no stumbling block in anyone's path so that our ministry will not be discredited. Paul is making an allusion to uh, the the so-called super apostles that have been coming through. Unlike so many, Paul says back in chapter 2, we do not peddle the word of God for profit. Some people were actually charging so that you could um, hear the preaching, hear the word of God. This was somehow a sign of an authentic apostle. So they had clever words, charisma and persuasive words. But in fact, they were putting stumbling blocks in the Corinthians' way. So Paul goes on like this. Rather... As servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way, in great endurance, in troubles, hardships and distresses, in beatings, imprisonments and riots, in hard work, sleepless nights and hunger. Paul, in his role as a a missionary into places where Christianity and preaching about Jesus was a hostile environment, faced lots of persecutions and hardships that prayerfully we're not ever going to face. Although if you are called to, as a missionary to a place that's hostile to Jesus, then those things are still going on in the world. However, every person, every human being in fact, faces trouble and hardship. And distress. As Christians, these hardships that happen to us become part of our testimony because we don't go through anything, good or bad, without God with us, God loving us, God giving us His peace. So, whether our hardships are financial or physical, whether it's pain in our body or in our relationships, whether the distresses are in our workplace 
or in our children's lives. God holds our hand, gives us direction, puts his words in our mouths as our lives and his work in us, his touch upon our life makes that appeal to others that don't know him. So Paul goes on. As servants of God, we commend ourselves in purity, understanding, patience and kindness, in the Holy Spirit and in sincere love, in truthful speech and in the power of God, with weapons of righteousness in the right hand and in the left. We may not feel that we can commend ourselves with a list like that. That's some pretty heavy character that has been built into Paul's life as he's followed Jesus. But you know what? Those words in yellow, that's our calling. We are the righteousness of God. And as we follow him, we will be transformed by the renewing of our mind. It's what God does. It's what the Holy Spirit does in our life. There's a heavy Christian word, sanctifying. The Holy Spirit is sanctifying our life. It's a word that means God is making us sacred, holy, set apart, different from what we were, different from what we would be without Jesus. You may have people who didn't uh, or only knew you before you knew Jesus who say things like, so what happened to you? How are you different? Or you might notice, like Paul has noticed things in his own life. I don't get angry and upset about that anymore. There seems to be, you know, a steadiness there. Or I don't wake up in the morning grumpy. I, I have hope. Or maybe there's a peace there that before Jesus was never there and I was just, you know, anxious and upset and worried. All of these things are what God will continue to do in our lives and it's our witness, helps our ministry. So Paul goes on to commend himself in his current difficulties. He says, through glory and dishonour, bad report and good report, genuine yet regarded as impostors, known yet regarded as unknown, dying and yet we live on, beaten and yet not killed, that man was stoned to death. Scripture says they picked him up dead. <laughs> and then he revived. And then he revived. Beaten and yet not killed. Sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Poor, yet making many rich. Having nothing. And possessing everything. There's a lot of life experience up there in those verses. A life hard lived in some respects but live with God. As I said, it's unlikely we're going to face all the things that Paul faced, but Jesus warned his disciples, in this world you will have trouble. But then he says, cheer up, be encouraged, take heart. I have overcome the world. We do know what it is to be sorrowful and yet rejoice. We come here to church Sunday by Sunday to worship God. We don't always come in happy clappy. 
We don't always come in jumping with joy, right? We sang one song this morning and it just reminded me that around about 11 years ago, I came to church one morning and we had just received the diagnosis of John's cancer. We had no idea really what was in front of us. But the surgeon explained the surgery. It involved breaking a couple of ribs, slitting there and going up there and slitting there and going down there. Um, it had a higher rate of death than open heart surgery. <laughs> Thank you. And he said, but John, you're young. A lot of people have this operation elderly. That, inv that increases your chances. And I said, so, so what is your prognosis then? What, you know, like five years down the track, what, what are you thinking? <laughs> and he basically gave us, or gave John 50-50. So I came to church that next Sunday and um, I was involved in the prayer beforehand and, sorry Laura, Laura was in tears. Um, you know, it wasn't real good news but it was beautiful um, just to be able to be prayed for. Some people who were in that team knew what was going on. And then to start to worship. And the songs that we sang, the words that we sang, just were the things that I was hanging on to, the promises of God, the hope, the courage, the fact that I didn't do this alone. So I knew what it was to rejoice in God and yet be pretty Sorrowful about the whole thing. Who would choose cancer? 11 years on and um, we actually have a list of all the good things that God's brought into our life because of that cancer. Paul says, um, poor yet making many rich. Now I'm not sure that anybody in Australia can actually claim to be poor by world standards but most of us would say we're not particularly rich. It's possible that Paul had nothing really. He says um, that he had nothing, that he gave it all away in order to uh, be the missionary that he was. But he says, making many rich. So what is it that Christians have that are riches to give away? That's what Paul said, making many rich. It's what God has done for us. It is what God is in us. It is the indwelling love of Jesus. We don't know, you know, what love really is, even if we've come from loving families, until we've experienced the love of God in us. That sweet, overpowering, better than honey, abundant, faithful, never-changing love that Jesus brings to our life. And we have that in abundance so that we can minister it out. We're called to live every person, we're called to love every person that we come across, to love our neighbour as we love ourselves. That's what we have, the riches of God in us for others. And then Paul says, having nothing and yet possessing everything. And again, he's not talking about material possessions. Although his material needs were met, 
But he says, possessing everything. We are now sons and daughters, heirs of the living God, who made everything that we are ever going to experience. It belongs to him. And we belong to him. Not just as human beings, created human beings, but as sons and daughters, heirs together with the king of this world, heirs together with Jesus. Yes, experiencing his suffering, but also heirs to his glory. You know, the scripture says, ask of me and I will give you the nations. 2,000 years after Jesus and we can look back and we can see the way the nations have been given to the people of God, to Christians. We now do not know of any nation where there is not at least a handful of believers. Think of that. Even in places that are hostile to Christ, the nations have indeed been given to the people of God. And one day when Jesus comes again, that whole, the whole world will acknowledge that. We will be the people to whom God has given everything. So Paul goes on now to talk to the Corinthians, getting back to the main theme of his letter. He says, We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians, and opened wide our hearts to you. We're not withholding our affection from you, but you are withholding yours from us. As a fair exchange, I speak to you as my children. Open wide your heart to me. So this is how the ministry of reconciliation works. We are reconciled with the Father, with God as our Father, and then reconciliation begins to work its way out to the people that are around us, the relationships that are around us. Paul was uh, facing some quite extreme um, opposition. It's not unusual that the enemy would try to oppose the work of God to be expected but these were people who had experienced Paul's ministry had come to faith they were Christians because Paul had come and ministered and yet here they were distancing themselves from him the answer Paul says is open wide your hearts to me also so let's pause just for a moment because we've been through a big list of what Paul says faith looks like for him. Paul knew what it was to live and preach the ministry of reconciliation every day. He had a great long list of troubles, hardships. He wore them as badges of honour. He was able to list outstanding character virtues like purity, understanding, patience and kindness that showed the transformed renewed life that he had in Christ. He knew what it was to be dishonoured, falsely accused, sorrowful, poor and unloved by people. Yet, he said he possessed life, joy and riches in Christ. The key is to open our hearts wide to God. 
You know, you might not think that you have many character virtues like Paul. Or you might feel like you're not handling your hardships in faith or with peace. Or you may think that maybe you're not much of a witness, that you don't get to talk about God to many people. All of this is part of what God has in mind for us and it's all received by opening wide our hearts to him. That's all. Why? Because we're co-workers with God. God has made an agreement with us that will never change because God is faithful. He has filled us with his spirit. He is always walking alongside of us. We belong to him. And so all we have to do to cooperate with God is open wide our hearts to him. To keep doing that every day. Well, Paul finishes his great digression with a warning about guarding our hearts from wrong relationships. He says, Do not be yoked together with unbelievers, for what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? What harmony is there between Christ and Belial? That's a Hebrew word that means Satan or the devil. What harmony is there between Christ and the devil? Or what does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will live with them and walk among them and I will be their God and they will be my people. Being yoked together is actually a common, fairly common metaphor in scripture and it's because it was a common sight. In an agricultural society they used oxen yoked together in order to pull their ploughs and pull their wagons and so forth. Paul uses it as a metaphor to be yoked together with another person or other people. Those uh, oxen there had to do everything together. If they wanted to eat, they had to put their heads down together. If they wanted to drink, they had to do it together. If they wanted to walk, they had to walk in the same direction. As far as people go, it's probably a picture of codependence. But Paul says, do not be yoked together with unbelievers. He's not talking about friendship with unbelievers. He's talking about committing themselves to close relationship with unbelievers who would then lead them back into temples and idolatry. There are a number of different ways in which this might happen. Um, the ancient world was by necessity a place where you made personal uh, alliances. So Paul is telling the Corinthian church, don't cooperate with the false teachers that offer a compromise with temple worship, you know, a way to have it both, be a Christian, but also fit in with your culture. Use some discernment. They might be persuasive and well-spoken, but that's not the gospel. That's not what God has for you. Uh, people would attach themselves to patrons, rich, powerful people, men, 
who could do you favours if you worked closely with them. Paul says, don't be yoked together with unbelievers. Be careful who you choose to have an allegiance with. Um, Most commonly, people were generally part of the work guilds. Now, the work guilds, the trade guilds, existed for every trade and business, pretty much. Whether you're a weaver or a tent maker or a carpenter or dyeing of cloth, there was a trade guild that you belonged to that gave work permits and credited your work. But they became more than that. They were political. They were responsible for... Um, the election of magistrates, for example. So being part of a trade guild could be the start for an ordinary person on a political career. Paul says don't be yoked to unbelievers. Worse than that, they were always religious. The bigger uh, trade guilds had their own priesthood because they had a patron god, an idol, and they participated in emperor worship. So... In that context, there are a number of different levels. You can see that he goes on for a few verses there. What agreement can there be between you who are the temple of God and idols? So in our own lives, a similar truth is is apparent. So for example, if you love Harley Davidson's, you've got one, you're not going to sign up for the Gypsy Jokers. They're known for their criminal activities. If God has brought us out of drug or alcohol abuse, we're not going to return to those friendships that drew us into that world or maintained that world for us. Um, We should be careful about the commitments that we make to other organisations. My father tells a story, used to tell a story, of um, a fellow Rotarian Now, my father was a justice of the peace and in a small country town he sometimes took care of some minor uh, legal matters. And this man came to him and wanted uh, my dad to waive a fine for him. He had not sought a permit and he'd put uh, a big wide load on his truck and he'd taken the back roads to escape detection. He was detected. But basically he was driving an unsafe load. And he wanted the connection that he had with my father as a Rotarian to waive the fine. There are going to be these ethical considerations for us all the time because we're called to be the righteousness of God. So in our friendships with unbelievers, we keep uppermost in our minds that we're inviting people. We're inviting people into a wondrous new relationship with God. That's God making his appeal through us to them. Not being drawn into what unbelievers might think of as normal. You know, friends that demean other people, slander, gossip, dirty jokes, or uh, getting drunk together. We don't do those things because we are making the appeal for God. And we are the righteousness of God. So we're called to live differently, to be holy as God is holy. For we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, 
I will live with them and walk among them and I will be their God and they will be my people. Therefore, come out from them and be separate, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing and I will receive you. God has a requirement on our lives to keep ourselves separate, to have his values, to follow where he's leading. And I will be a father to you and you will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Therefore, since we have these promises, dear friends, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. God calls us his people. He says that he will receive us. He will be a father to us. We are his sons and daughters. We're not called to be yoked together with people who don't believe. We're called to be yoked to God, to be his co-worker. We are those who fear God, who are compelled by the love of Christ. We are new creations, ministers of reconciliation and ambassadors for Christ. We implore others on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. But we don't do any of these things alone because we are co-workers with God himself. In one of the songs that we sang just before the sermon, there was a line, God is sending us out light in this broken land. God has poured out his light into us that we will have light to shine out into a broken land. Christ has overcome He has overcome every strategy of the enemy to prevent that. (laughs) Every strategy throughout the world to stop people being saved. Let's pray.